0: Staging Sound: A podcast reflecting on theatre music, sound design, sonic practices, and experiences. It's, what is it called? I called Open, but uh, cold open,
1: yeah. well, but could, yeah. The... I mean, I think that would be. I think we could, we could uh, segue into it in a natural way.
0: Welcome. My name is David Rösner. In today's episode, Adrian Curtin, Peter Verstrade, and I went into our personal archives to dig out papers we had written on various interplays of theater and music a while ago. And we will discuss points of connection, research contexts, and how the field has developed. Links to many of our references are in the show notes enjoy this episode. It's your circus. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I've got monkeys to work. With. Yes you do. <laughs> you served that one. I'm so sorry. Adrian. Okay <clears throat> so what I suggest we do is that we go around the table <laughs> as as it were and try to introduce our respective pieces of writings to each other again just to remind ourselves and our listeners to what they were about and then we can Seek to draw out some points of connections and some points of um, overlaps, or even contradictions, depending on um, how controversial we want to be today. Agent, do you, you want to start?
1: Are you, are you happy to do I that? I am. I can remember what it is that we're talking about. Um, so I've uh, I've circulated an article that I wrote um, about six years ago, maybe seven years ago, um, and published in Contemporary Theatre Review. And the article title is Recomposing Genet," analyzing the musicality of playing the maids. And this was um, an article that looked at a piece of theater that I um, co-created. I was part of the the team that created it. Um, uh, The late, great Philip Cirilli was the the director um, and his his artistic partner and life partner, Kate O'Reilly was the dramaturge. And um, there, there were um, uh, several theatre companies who, who combined from uh, Gate Crash in Cork, from Cork in Ireland, where I'm from, uh, Theatre Pyot from South Korea, and then another independent artist called Jing uh, Jing Okorn Quo. So there were several of us who, who got together and created a piece of theatre inspired by Jean Genet's play, The Maids. Um, it, was, it was not a production of the play, but it used the, the play as a, as a starting point um, for uh, a series of investigations around issues, cultural issues and um, societal issues that interested us. So this was a really wonderful um, artistic experience for me and a very happy Period in my life working on this on this piece and um, performing it, and when it ended, I thought to myself, "Well, I, that was such a rich experience. I would like to, to reflect on that." Um, so I read this this article, um, and my interest in it was uh, to think about how I could incorporate my own experience as. Uh, a, a cellist and a co-creator of this piece, but not only focus on just the, the sonic and the musical elements, but I say musical elements as I hear sirens outside the window. Um, but to think more um, uh, kind of uh, fluidly about the the process that we had done, which was very organic, and it felt like there were um, a lot of kind of sharing of of roles. Um, so it felt like quite a, a porous. Activity and I wanted to try to find a way of of honouring that in the in the article. So um, I I I reflect on on the music and the sound in it, but I think about the the, the piece of theatre as. Uh, through the through the the prism of musicality, borrowing on on your work, David. As I, as I was rereading this uh, in preparation for this conversation, I realized that this is like a David Rosner tribute article <laughs> because there are so many references to your work.
0: Which is so why I invited and you. Here, I yeah. know, I
1: know. <laughs> um, so it's an attempt to think about the the production as a as a musical enterprise, and I I riff on the idea of composed theatre. Um, but instead I I talk about recomposed theatre and the idea of a a musical recomposition, which is when a a composer um, takes a piece of existing music and does something different with it, right? Takes some thematic elements or some melodies or something, but creates their own uh, version of it, um, as Max Richter did with Vivaldi's The Four Seasons. So I use that to to begin the, the article. But that's the general... That's the general
0: shape of what I what I discuss. Great, and plenty of points of connections there already, uh, um, as we uh, will we'll talk about in a minute. Um, Peter, what was your the one that you wanted to share with us yeah. and and sort of remember? I'm also trying to remember. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: It's a chapter that
0: I wrote
2: right after when
0: I finished the PhD,
2: and I was in 2009. I'm not sure if the chapter was published really in 2009, but it was part of a book but, that. Uh, 2011 which you edited so it's 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 again you know a tribute to to the wonderful professor david reusner <laughs> um in that regard but um yeah this was actually a, for me an exercise to i mean it, it did try to do two things i think that 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 chapter it was on, on the one hand of course summarize what the phd kind of uh, brought about and it was a um, a, a profound let's say thought provoking journey for me to understand what happens really in the listeners' uh you know perception and mind uh, when 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 um, uh, engaging with a piece of music theater and I try to extend that to let 's say uh, experiments uh with vocal music um, that you can find in 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 performance art and also in the concert scene and more you know experimental concert scene usually with um, or supported by by new technologies, so I was trying to do that. So that's what, where the, the second uh, concept comes in uh, that I tried to um, unpack, which I call radical vocality, and it's um, it's a term that I see uh, coming up again in recent years, uh, especially with Francesca Baumann's uh, work, who is actually now. Uh, finishing a manuscript of a book where she engages with the concept so I'm quite happy that uh, that someone p- picked it up but uh, I wasn't so sure back then if it was a real uh, you know, fitting uh, concept but it seems uh, it, it has uh, found uh, some momentum in, uh, in, 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 the, in the practice. So what I tried to do was um, yeah, uh, try to explain a little bit what's happening in the listener's mind in this kind of interdisciplinary way I, I kind of borrow from, uh, you know, p- more like perception studies, cognitive studies, also philosophy uh, of, of uh, in this case, for instance, I, I tried to extend my, my thinking through Michel Serres' metaphysical thinking around noise as parasitic. Um, and the notion that I came up with, which I am very critical of today, is, the, uh, is auditory distress, as, as a way to explain what happens in the first moment when you when you are captured by a sound and you want to respond to it, or you feel the need to respond to it, um, it what it, what I mean by it is actually more of an affective impetus, let's say, that is inside uh, the sound that uh, materializes itself as a sort of perceptual excess. Um, you can already maybe you know uh, see the, how it resonates with also the you know the studies of performativity. Uh, definitely uh, uh, Butler's uh, idea of performativity as excess, um, and and how that kind of pushes you to respond in a in what I call a, a, res- a, a meaningful way. So um, one of the things that I exp- uh, unpack then in this chapter is the vo- uh, the voice body or the vocalic body, which uh, you know I was very much inspired uh, by the work of. Uh, of uh, Connor Stephen Connor, in this regard, um, as a way to explain okay so you're you're um let's say um, responding to a sound coming from a body um in in technology that would mean that it's disembodied it's it's kind of you know taken away from its source so how do you respond to it and usually we 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 kind of try to bring that uh, sound back to to its body where it comes from but that can be an, an amalgamation of a body because you also start to imagine uh things that can be either highlighted by the gestures of of, of the person who, who produces it uh, or it can be, if, the, if it's completely in a deprived situation, visually de- deprived situation, can be just uh, something that you make up. So even with this podcast, you know, people uh, would 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 uh, you know, uh, even if they don't know how I look like, you know, that's kind of what we do with radio stars or or hosts, uh, not a star or something. But we we kind he's of on one podcast. Yeah, he thinks that he's we, a we, radio star. Yeah, radio star, exactly. <laughs> uh, we imagine uh, a body to that to that uh, voice that we hear, and that is the amalgamated kind of image that we have. Um as, as, a, as a resolution, as I call it, of this of this distress that is caused in, in your perceptual system uh, in, in engaging with the sound. So what does it mean? I mean, um, I tried to connect it to, uh, to because I remember also from the PhD, someone was asking, isn't this just noise? No, it is not. I mean, maybe mine was more meant in a metaphorical uh, sense. Um, to explain something, but um, but I do think there are connections with noise. Um, uh, for instance, where Michel Serre um, talks about how noise is, uh, is parasitic in a way that it actually takes hold of a body without uh, really, um, let's say, uh, losing its agency or its uh, its its independence. So, um, and that is for me a way to explain that, for instance, every sound always has a has a part in it that is noise. Um, because it creates, um, the basis, let's say, the, uh, or the, um Call it the ground the, the ground so it's like the ground, pictorial ground exactly figure, isn't it? the figure and the ground yeah. so that's that's what uh, what Schaefer would say our Mary Schaefer, but it 's even more than that it's it's really the base or it sets the condition for the for the, for the communication and the meaning making so if you take the noise out of the sound, you, you would actually not have anything left anymore I mean you would not be able to um, actually recognize the sound as such so we need we need always the, the noise part to really uh, you know connect to the to the sound. Um, that's why I have this one, one other example where there is the attack of a sound, for instance, like you know a piano sound. You would you know have the the hammer you know beating on the on the string. If you would take that sound out, you would probably not understand that it's a piano sound. Um, so that's the decay, then, right? So so you always need both. Um, and of course we what we do in our perception that's what soundscape's uh, analysis uh, at least states is that we we filter out uh, the, the, the information that we don 't need so so even you know you, you would not necessarily be aware of that attack, but it 's it's, it's something that you filter out, but it 's still there it 's important for you in order to to relate to the sound and to make meaning to make sense of it. So that is um, something I explained in the chapter, and then um, in relation to the production uh, La, Didone, uh, La Didone, I don't know, from um, the, uh, by the Wooster Group in 2007, I believe. That's when I saw it in, in Rotterdam at the uh, um, Opera Dagen uh, Rotterdam, which is now called O Festival. Um, and, um, yeah, so that, uh, that production particularly, I think, played a lot with, uh, with our listening modes as it was overlaying, um, a Baroque opera with, um, uh, an Italian, uh, cult, uh, movie which was, uh, set in space it was an interesting uh, because they were bringing these dramaturgies of sound together so the, the on the one hand the baroque sound of of, of the opera and on the other hand uh, the sound effects of of, the, of these uh, uh, space uh, movies um and it was in some way although they were very different worlds colliding and creating an interesting um amalgamated uh, worlds uh, and also amalgamated bodies again you know like on the one hand the, the actors would be sometimes uh, playing out uh, uh, you know aliens and then on the other hand they were in in this baroque uh, opera so so that was actually for me the case study although i think the theory could be applied in much wider uh, sense so that's what i tried to do later with other articles. To um, since this radical vocality, of course, applies not only to the theatre but also to uh, to the concert stage and, uh, and and performance.
0: Great. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, there there are so many connections already, and uh, I can sense that certainly that the chapter that I'm going to talk about has connections with yours, Adrian, about a kind of uh, a reimagining or a reevaluating the role of music and the musician in in a theatre production, from a more conventional, this is your little world that you play in, and you, you describe how the the roles are really uh, dissolving between actors and and directing and co-directing as a sound engineer or as a, as a musician, etc. And and certainly with yours, Peter, in, in in the sense that you talk a lot about mm, clashes of let's just say different idioms or expectations. I mean, what you just mentioned about. Uh, the Worcester Group is is really overlaying sonic um, conventions uh, and 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 having us doubt: are, are we in an opera now? Is this a, or is this a performance? What, what is, is? Are we in a in a sort of in a restaged in a reenactment of a, of a of a of a film or something? So it it kind of plays with all that, and that's that's very interesting. Um, mine has a slightly funny. Um, publication history, because I just realized in looking it up again that I, I gave it as a paper in 2006 of all times, you know, so really early on. I think it was one of the first song, stage and screen conferences, uh, the conference series that accompanies the, the, the journal studies in musical theater, which has really accompanied us, I think, all through our <laughs> academic lives, or most of, most of them. Uh, and it then took until, for, for reasons un- unknown to me, to be honest, uh, it took until 2013 when it was published as a chapter in the book by uh, Dominic Simmons and Pamela Karatonis who we all have worked with and, and have all uh, uh, do all know and that book was actually called The Legacy of Opera Reading Music Theatre as Experience and Performance um, What and then my pap- paper is called or my chapter is called Dancing in the Twilight on the Borders of Music and the Scenic I think it's an attempt to talk about what I then called interplays of theatre and music that do not follow established rules or genre conventions so that was certainly one of the things I was really interested in, where does that particular uh, dialogue between things that we could call musical and things that we could call scenic or theatrical, where does this um, leave certain Uh, pigeonholes or categories that we're familiar with so we're all familiar how the musical works or an opera works or a a ballet you know works or 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 a theater performance of shakespeare with some incidental music works that that's pretty established no one will sit in a musical and go like why are they singing what's going on you know it's not we're we're perfectly fine with that Uh, but in in other contexts it would be highly disturbing it would be highly sort of um jarring um so genre I understand here really uh not without going into, into genre theory in too much, but just really as a dialogue between the makers and the piece and the audience. And it's it's not a checklist, you know, if it has this, it's that genre, but it's it's sort of a set of expectations and but that is a fluid and iterative process of what that genre is. Um and I then tried to look at what I, at the time, and I don't think it's a great term, actually. I, I love how you, you already brought up this notion of what are the terms that we have desperately tried to get into yeah. the discourse yeah. and Making then have happen. fallen flat on them. <laughs> <laughs> And some other terms were really picked up. I mean, yeah. you mentioned composed theatre. That, yeah. that had, a, had an afterlife, luckily. Other terms, not so much. So my, my term of fusional phenomena has not really <laughs> gained... I, like, I or, like fusional phenomena. I, know, I, like I think too. Now, now that it, I've been you know, not, re-encountered with it, I think yeah. I will, I will <laughs> well, maybe we can help to make it happen. This, this will probably popularise it, popularize it beyond, <laughs> uh, beyond all our imagination. I don't know about
1: transmedial
0: <laughs> intermediality, though. Thank you. That, yeah, that not, oh, God, that yeah. Not let's suck. not go there. <laughs> no, but what I'm what I'm trying to say is um, I looked at phenomena, I looked at theatre performances um, in the widest sense that bring together music, sound and theatre in sort of slightly unexpected ways Um, and I I used intermediality as a sort of framework or as a concept to look at this meeting of different art forms and different media conventions as well and in particular I I used a, a coinage by Chris Baum who as one of the many possibilities of Intermediality talks about Intermediality as and I quote the attempt to realize in one medium the aesthetic conventions and habits of seeing and hearing hearing, in another medium and I I like that notion that we sometimes transfer so we might sit in a theater and be confronted with conventions of a concert or of the video game or of you know other other media conventions there Um, and I then try to uh, again, have a sort of a systematic. that we all try to sort of get a get a, a certain model or a s- system going, which I describe with three visual metaphors. I don't know why I used visual metaphors to describe the the. I did. Sound. I did note that when I was reading it. It did seem um, uh, curious.
1: Yes. And I expected you to to flag it, and and you didn't. Not yeah. that that's a problem, but like you know, I guess we're just so. Uh, you know, oculocentrism is, exactly, is so yeah. much part of our yeah, yeah. thinking. I mean, I spent several years railing against yeah. it, and I thought, no, you know what, give up and win.
0: Yeah, give up. Um, and we still <laughs> talk about perspectives and yeah. viewpoints and, and, and you know, landscape, and, you know has, has landscape. landscape, you know, has landscape, you know, in it. Yeah. Um, so,
1: yeah, there's no yeah. way of getting around that.
0: No. That's true. But I don't know how conscious or unconscious I made that choice, but it was slightly curious how I chose three uh, visual metaphors to describe different kinds of relationships. But I'll just go through them very quickly and then we can go into discussing all these concepts. So the one was really um, the idea that sometimes in seeing a piece of theater music, music theater, whatever you want, want, want to call it, it's a, a bit like a picture puzzle. Uh, I, I still, I was fresh in, in the UK, so I still had German um, terms in my mind. Suchbild was the term I, I went for. So it's like those Where is Wally or Where, where is Waldo books, you know, where you, you stare at an image of a lot of information and you're looking for a boy in a striped shirt and then at some point it pops up. So you, it's, it's kind of a searching and then it, it comes up and then you can't unsee it. Once you've seen it, it's there, and but it doesn't. In any way, negate the rest of the image. So the rest of the image is still there. The second one, I call the tilting figure or a kip figure. Uh, again, these are these images that you've all seen in, in books of visual illusions, etc., where you look at it something, and it's either a duck or a dog, or it's either an old woman's face or a young girl's body, or something like that. So. You have to kind of make almost conscious or unconscious choice. I see either that or that. It can tilt forward and backwards, but you can't. You kind of can't see both at the same time. So it really switches. So apply it to the theatre, so it, you know, it it, it 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 tilts into something else, and then you can't at the same time see it as as the other thing. And then the last one was sort of inspired by Victor Turner's ideas of a, a schwellenphänomen, phenomenon, a sort of a liminal phenomenon, something that is has turner would call it the betwixt and between. It's sort of neither here nor there. It's sort of suspended in a in a in a in a state of being undecided. Is this Still acting or already musicking? Is this uh, still sound, Is this still noise or already music? You know. So the two case studies I used were one film, which was uh, Dancer in the Dark, which is also why the title is called Dancing in the Twilight. Which is sort of a it's neither it's neither night nor day. So that was the idea of the Twilight. It was sort of this liminal liminal state, this hour, this blue hour, as they call it in German. Um, and, uh, and the other example was a, a, a music theatre piece by Heiner Goebbels called *Irrari Ritjaka, and I've practiced that a lot. Um, and it was, for example, um, th- th- in in the film *In Dancing of the Dark*, there are a lot of scenes where the the the, the protagonist uh, Selma, who's played by Björk, imagines or dreams up the, the the pretty harsh surroundings, the pretty harsh reality that she's in, and working in a factory, for example. And dreams herself into a musical wonderland sort of you know and and informed by sort of golden age film musicals etc and there 's always that moment so at one point it 's it's it's a uh, it's a factory and there's noise and and machines and then at some point it's full on choreography full on song big orchestra et cetera. but there's a small moment in between where the clangs and the you know are not yet music but they're no longer quite a realistic soundscape of a factory that sort of there's a transition there and then and then it's sort of tilts to the other thing and it becomes a, a full on musical scene which is uh, which is also a moment where last Venturier completely changes the camera technique so you know where where he goes from handheld realistic sort of wobbly mm-hmm. um uh, um, um, dogma 95 kind of camera to hundreds of cameras they put all around the place and frantic editing and a, a sort of a completely dist- uh, what 's the word um a, a camera that's that flies around the room essentially that is completely um, un- untethered to it to, uh, to the ground um, so i think this this is kind of what what i aim to do with the with that paper and i think as you can see there are there are some relations to both of yours um, and yeah i wonder where you see connections or how,
2: how yeah. Uh. Well, I mean, one thing I was going to ask about this kip figure, this, this tilting figure, what is it, um, how it works in sound, because it seemed to me, as you were describing how the tilting is also happening in the mind of um, of, the, of Selma, yeah, uh, from, from reality to day, uh, dreaming or, or um, uh, yeah, whatever. So I, I was just thinking, uh, is, is it really, because the, the kip figure is something that happens in your own perception and you're trying to steer it as 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 you are looking at the figure right and if that also can happen in sound whereas with film of course everything is very much uh, given as a perspective given by by the filmmaker. so I mean in my case I would think um, it could happen where the noise becomes the sound and the sound becomes the noise yeah um, and and you know when I was reading uh, Adrian's article I, I was listening actually to the to the music of Max Richter, the recomposed by Max Richter, Vivaldi's The Four Seasons album. And there something happens, actually. You have these um, I think the last tracks are called All Shadows, Shadow 1, Shadow 2, Shadow 3, Shadow 4, I don't know, and, um, and, and basically what he does is he, he again maybe almost recomposes what he already recomposed <laughs> but he all, he starts with first a background noise like um, birds uh, in a park or uh, bees bu- buzzing you know, uh, even uh, the sound of water which is actually for Michel Serres, the, the the noise par excellence where Everything comes from eh? because, um, you know, that's that's the sound that 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 is really the nothingness and actually the excess. You know, we cannot really grasp it, and that has been always uh, also part of our lives. Even if we are getting born and we're coming from a womb, which is also full of water, so so that's that's that. So, but uh, but Max Richter plays with it. So you have the sound, for instance, of 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 the, of the birds, and then slowly he kind of, how do you say it, like has a zoom in, bring yeah, fades in, yeah, that's a better word, of course, in this case, brings in the uh, the recomposed Vivaldi. And it sounds like that, you know, it's like as if the birds are listening to the Vivaldi. So he keeps the music also a little bit in the background and and, and you have the, the the noise constantly until the end, even he ends with, again, the birds in the end rather than the Vivaldi. So, so it, for me, it feels like, you know, that what we understand as musical and thereby... The sound that we want to listen to is actually becoming the noise, and it's the sound of the of the birds that actually you know uh, gets more prominence. Um, so so that play, you know, that's that's what I, I was thinking about uh, when I was reading your article as well. That that I'm wondering if that's really happening in the in the dancer in the dark. Yeah,
0: I'm I'm not sure. Um, well, in the in dancer in the dark, I, I, I I've forgotten what I used as an example there for the tilting image, but certainly. I mean, there are moments when, for example, there's a train and the rhythm of the of the train going over the tracks then becomes the pulse for the musical number. And so it kind of falls over into that. But the, the example I thought of, which is not from those uh, from those artworks, but just from experiences, sometimes when you... I don't know if you have this or it's just me, but if you switch on the radio and there's a track going, like a pop track, and sometimes kind of mishear the beat and it sounds really complicated and offbeat and, you know, complicated... And then I realized I just had the, the time signature wrong. I kind of felt this was the one and it's not the one. And it's actually a quite a banal beat, but it sounds really, you know, interesting and refined and off beat. And it's not because I, I sort of put it into the wrong frame in my mind mm, and then yeah. it tilts and then I can't yeah. hear it. Yeah. So I cannot get, once it's back to, yeah, well, then it's just that, you know, yeah. and I can't really go back to it. Um, so those are perhaps the... Those moments. I think in in the the second example I gave, the Heine Goebbels piece, which is really, I mean, it's an interesting piece in and of itself, but it is to me also really an almost systematic exercise in redefining that relationship between musicianship, life musicianship there's a string quartet on stage and an actor and, you know, media, there's film, live film, etc. And to, in each scene, redefine that relationship and it always sort of tilts from being a concert into, for example, uh, sometimes it's not, it's not a sudden moment, but it's it's a transition. I think it ends, the, 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 they play Shostakovich at the beginning, really in a concert setting. It's, you, you think, why am I in a theater? <laughs> this is a string quartet. It goes on for like for 10 minutes or so. It's a proper string quartet concert within that piece. And then they play the last chord and they pick up the last note and, and transform it into grainy sound effects you know, uh, electronically. And then it becomes sort of an actor's monologue, and then it becomes a film with accompanying music. But then you think, well, this is Ravel, this shouldn't be a film soundtrack, this should be in the foreground, and then it becomes the background. And so, yeah. Or, or what, what leads who, you know, is, is the light leading the music, or the music leading the light, or the actor? So those relationships are really un, unpicked there in a very sort of playful and, and funny way. Yeah. So in a
2: way, it is again playing with conventions and expectations yeah. of the audience, right? And, yeah. then, and then turning it
0: around and then, oh. And even with what I tended to then, I think I didn't use the word at the time, but I found it useful later uh, in, la- in later research with frames, you know, in that urban government sense of yeah. here mm-hmm. I'm... I have a situation, and I need to frame it in some way to make sense of it. Is this yeah. a family dinner table conversation, or is this uh, yeah. I, I don't know an audition, or is this uh, a piece of art, or is this everyday life? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's as someone who's you know a, a cultural
1: analyst, right? You are primed. To try to make sense of things in certain ways, right? And to try to, and especially your work, David. I mean, I think you're you're very fond of of categorizing things, and I don't mean that in any kind of slide. But I mean, i I feel like I've read several articles yeah. of yours where where I can see a very kind of um, structured way of thinking, right? You like being able to kind of name and relate things in, in quite a, a, a formal a formal way, while allowing for obviously you know complexity and nuances. Yeah, but yeah. I can yeah. see a kind of like yeah. you strike me as being uh, having quite a structuralist mind. Yeah. Um, it's also very German, though. Too. Is it? That's what it is. <laughs> now that i take is. as an insult.
0: No, no. It's uh, got uh, from okay to worse. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's but, you know, but there's a the, the the subjectivity a of,
1: of, of response and, 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 um, and what people, how people want to um, make sense or not of artistic, sonic, musical phenomena. Um, I mean, there's a part of me that the, the theatre historian part of me. I have a little kind of you know historian person on my on my shoulder, um, who uh, and in the work that I've done, I've tried I've tried to think about the historicity of listening, and cultures of listening, and how those are um, uh, you know shaped and how they change over time. Um, and in relation to your uh, article, Peter, I mean, I'm thinking about. Uh, when you when you uh, write about auditory distress, um, and you, you bring in um, schizophrenia near, near the end of it, right, uh, Schaefer's term Schaefer's for yeah. a kind of disconnect between sound and source, yeah. um, and I'm thinking to myself, well, I mean, how, you know, how uh, I mean, what is the historicity of that? Right, yeah, I mean, we've sure. had disembodied voices yeah. now for over a century, right, since the mechanical reproduction of sound. Is yeah. that still something that would trigger um, a kind of uh, a strange making yeah. in in the listener's perception um, or, or is it now part of a has that become a kind of a, a norm right are we now are we now so comfortable yeah. with voices being disconnected from bodies yeah. that we don't need to Attach them to a source because when I was reading your your chapter, I was thinking, well, would I feel distress in this moment? Would I feel the need to um, to attribute this this uh, acousmatic voice to a body on the stage, or is it because we because I am now so accustomed to? Um, you know calling up various utility services and getting
2: By an, an
1: artificial voice at the, yeah. ed, at the under yeah. end at the other side yeah. that I know is not a real person that i don 't attribute a body to mm-hmm. right that, that now we have a different way of making sense of, of voices, voices and bodies, mm-hmm. um, or indeed, if I were you know, attending um, the, the Goebbels piece, um, would I be uh, as someone who really enjoys kind of genre porosity? Um, would i be uh, would I be thrown by that, or would i be you know would I be pleasurably able to just kind of get into the flow of it all i don 't know that I would necessarily go the route that you went David, which is to kind of think about it in
0: terms of a kind of structuralist paradigm right um, and maybe i wouldn 't today i don 't uh, know it 's it's, it's an interesting observation I I, I I really think what what you 're pointing out, Adrian is this this how radically our environment has changed in the last 20 years or so that i was researching i mean my piece is 12, yeah. 12 years old i'm not sure when the iphone was on the market but not not much before or maybe even later so you know it's like 10 15 know, years, the years the or something, or something. Yeah. so it must be around that time so certain things that we completely take for granted in terms of the constant accessibility sound but also the the the, the constant disturbance through i mean if we don't very consciously switch off all the notifications etc our uh, world is really filled with sonifications of various uh, ways. And we were discussing um, the, uh, the another, another Worcester Group piece the other day, uh, To You the Birdie, which uses that in a very <laughs> yeah. sort of self-conscious and very yeah. uh, knowing way, uh, as early as that, which is quite prescient in some ways. Mm. This omnipresence of sounds that simply, they don't do anything than draw attention to a device or a message or something. Uh, so they're very mm. annoying and redundant in many ways. Uh, and of course, you know the, the Worcester group makes an irony out of that and, and and sort of exaggerates that and and but to come back to to your observation which I find very interesting because you know I don't have that distance to my own writing and thinking in some ways I think I have in recent years sort of been, been more interested as well about sort of phenomenological approaches which are less about sort of categorizing and saying oh this is this and this is the other and I'll call this that and I hope someone uses that term. But but appreciate the subjectivity and the kind of the the eventfulness of of going somewhere um, and and experiencing a piece and um, and also the coexistence I suppose of very different frames at the same time which which I find quite interesting that we, we I, I do think we can actually at the same time for example wonder how this is made you know very often with sound because you know we don't quite when it's axiomatic we don't know. You know, who, who does that sound effect? Is that automatic? Is that a pre-recorded? Uh, is, it pre-recorded? Yeah. is it live? Uh, where is it from? Uh, it's very interesting when it's, when it's visible, as in Katie Mitchell's pieces, when she does sort of foley sounds on yeah. both sides. and we can, But then again, we're just... You can't tr- always you know. trust what you're seeing either, right? No, <laughs> it, may, it, may not, it may be uh, cheating slightly. Yes, with what's that? John
1: Collins' line? Like, like, sound is the greatest liar, I think he oh, says okay. that. Oh, okay.
0: And John Collins, being obviously the one of the sound uh, um, inventors and sound engineers of the Worcester Group, so he, he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> yeah, we can and of all, all foley sound is is, is lying in that sense. Yeah. You know, uh, nothing we hear on a, on a Hollywood film is is exactly from from the source we see it emanate from. Um, yeah, sorry, I but, don't know where I was going I mean, going there was sl- yeah. a thing
1: about about being um, you know suspended in. Not confusion, but uncertainty and uh, complexity. I guess right, and and whether or not one strives to um, replicate that or try to account for that in in the analysis. I think I was trying to do that in my in my essay on the maids. I was trying to allow for a certain for the the um, the overlap and the fluidity and the, the sense of unknowingness. Um, that was part of the creative process, where we were reaching for a thing, right, without having having a, a completely clear sense of, of what the final product would be, right. So that sense of of it being a kind of open-ended entity, but then you get to the point where you obviously you have to you have to say something concrete about it, but you don't want to to reduce the thing that you're describing, right, or or um, you know make it less less open or less Um, variable than it it might have been in in practice. I mean, I think that's a difficult thing to try to to, um, account for. Yeah.
2: Um, Mm. I think I just wanted to correct one thing, because that's also why I'm not using auditory distress as a term anymore, because it led usually to the confusion that, you know, that it it actually distresses you, that it creates negativity in you, right? Um, and that's not what I actually meant by, by it. Um, I was just trying to, to explain how you feel pushed in an effective way by a sonority to relate to it. So, so also in in, in this chapter, I, yes, I referred to the era of schizophrenia, which uh, Schaefer calls it's, it's the 20th century, right? So we had let's say the era of uh, of noise was the 19th century with the industrial revolutions and then that maybe up until the war time let's say which was a very very noisy time um but but it really gets more complex from let's say the 1950s onwards up till today with the ubiquity of technologies and you know and and when it comes to sound obviously with the mobility of sound that you know definitely explodes in the 1980s with you know when when you get the first walkman and then that becomes later the iPod and then you know all the sounds that that we have now with the mobile phone as uh, david was 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 relating to, so yeah, there is definitely uh, an increase of uh, of how you relate to noises and, and a change mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. but i think uh, yeah i i mean i didn 't want to to say that uh, you know when when you relate to to the sound that it that it is out of a, of a feeling of distress. it 's more of being like the stress is there that was the the, the, the word that I was looking for. Uh, a colleague of mine who was writing uh, a little bit before me, uh, and I finished my PhD, uh, Vincent Milberg he called it a sonic stroke. Oh, uh, I remember <laughs> this. Yeah, we, I think we I talked about this it term. But that's not really. I mean, the problem there again was that stroke can actually, you know, mean a, a, like a heart attack or something, which he didn't mean. He, he meant like striking on, let's say, how, how you bow, you know, on, on the on the violin or something, or like this, uh, like it's it's a, it's a sound gentle sound as touch, touch, touch. Yeah, 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 pattern. Yeah, touch yeah. That, yeah, That's what he meant by it. So. Um, it's another term. Also, didn't make it uh, into the, no, in to the, <laughs> to the into camera. the canon. But uh, but it, it, there were all kind of attempts to explain in a metaphorical sense, kind of what 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 happens in the, in, in when, when we listen. What happens, you know, when in a deep kind of physiological yeah. Physiologically, sense. Physiologically, yeah. Because of course, you know, you have the uh, the touch of sound on 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 the uh, what is it called the uh, the eardrum, yeah. For that, you also have a few muscles that actually have to push it. And from that moment on, you you have to deal with it with the sounds. Of course, uh, eighty ninety percent of the sounds we actually filter out because you know it it doesn't uh, make sense to us or it doesn't have an immediate effect on us. Let's say uh, also in in a primordial sense in how we have to survive as human beings. Um, so so that's uh, that that's that. So you have that that feeling of okay, you have to relate to it, and that's the moment that I wanted to describe. Um, and, but on the other hand, even if you go to Michel Serres thinking, the noise is not necessarily, uh, pejorative. It's actually the meaning of life for him. It's uh, life is always noisy because it is, it's creating resonances, right? So, so it is a positive relation. Also even, okay, this schizophrenia, Schaefer mended in a, in a quite negative, uh, way. He's a pu- uh, sound Puritan, uh, uh, idealist, uh, Just wants to be out in the
1: countryside, listening to church yeah, bells yeah, and cows, going being. back to a
2: pre-industrial kind of reality that you will be, we will never uh, go back to, and probably not not even uh, ever existed. Uh, <laughs> so it is that uh, um, yeah, that Puritanism that um, that I am yeah that I I think it's uh, it's 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 not uh, what I want to claim, of course. Um, but um, but I do think that um, there is kind of let's say still a continuity of what the, what the modernists were trying to do um, also on the stage, uh, the experiments in, in terms of making people aware by uh, disturbing intervening sounds. We were talking about Rousseau, for instance. Yes, uh, and, uh, and Artaud, and, of course. And Artaud. Um, and I think what's happening in the with these new technologies, and also with this radical vocality on the stage, I think in the end of the 90s, beginning of the 2000s, is a, is a way is in a way going back to what actually these experiments were in the, in the modernist period. Let's say of the beginning of the 20th century. I think you can actually make an arch. So, so that's why it made sense to me to go to these performances to discuss something what's happening in our in our in our senses, in in a kind of laboratory setting. Actually, these these music theater performances or or, or concert stage uh, performances with uh, with all sorts of technologies that m- make it possible to do a live ele- uh, ele- electroacoustic experimentation, they really kind of uh, are a profound experimentation and and, um, and a search and investigation of artists. I think of this perceptual. Uh, uh, strategies uh, that that people were already aware of in the beginning of the 20th century with these new technology of phono- phonography. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, are, are these auditory distress or however you'd like to um, term yeah. it? I mean, yeah. um, are, are these experiences that you have had as an audience member? Um,
2: yeah, I mean, I think. I mean, again, to uh, try to explain what I mean by it, the auditory distress for me as a kind of way to push you uh, to relate is actually in every sound. Yes. No. No. So it is not necessarily one specific experience. Yes, there are these experiences where you have that when when you're very aware of it. uh, And they become like maybe prototypical for, you know, uh, also for my case studies, you know, because they have that kind of value, explanatory value. But they're actually in every sound that you pick up. And that uh, makes sense to you, or that you know, in theatre, uh, push you in order to uh, to think or to relate or to do something or to feel something.
0: Can I throw in one one more sort of angle, which I think came up from what you were saying, but we haven't really touched on it explicitly, which is the question of conscious and unconscious listening. Um, so the question of when something becomes you know an, a, something that we are aware of, that we're aware that we are listening to something in a pleasant or unpleasant way. Um, and it can be distressing if we're unaware as well. I mean, we can have... Do you know the, the, the feeling when someone turns sort of a background noise off, like, a, 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 for example, in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a seminar when I have the projector going and then at some point I know I don't need it anymore and I switch it off and I realize how loud the fan was and how we can all relax now and have a conversation without sort of, you know... And that's a very... You know, for most of the party, it was unconscious. But I was interested in it because also... Um, in all of our articles and all of our research, that question of listening and attending—I think George Hump Cook called it attending to stretching sounds oneself. and to—yeah, to, stretching oneself towards sounds so as a physical experience rather than just being a passive recipient. Um, but I wonder to what degrees we've all chosen examples as well that, that are, where, where the music is not just pleasant under. what's the word, Uh, underscore, or sort of, uh, in German, I I hate this word, they call it untermalung. It's not even, because it's underpainting, so it's even again a a visual metaphor for something that music does, and it doesn't explain anything, it just means there is music there. Wallpaper music. Uh, Yes, yeah, it's a visual visual metaphor as well. And, where I'm going with this is, is in some ways, I wondered... Um, I know one of uh, Philip's uh, books or articles is called something like The Body Being All Ears. All, that's all, a, all eyes. All eyes. Oh, sorry. It's okay. all eyes. This you've, is you've, interesting you've, how you've, re- you've, that, <laughs> you've,
1: you've
0: refashioned well, it. i completely <laughs> refashioned that for my own purposes. But let me ask the question
1: then, Adrian. <laughs> Stellark is the man with the body with all ears. That's true. sewn
0: <laughs> on various body parts. <laughs> a third um, year, even, I remember. Yeah. What I wanted to ask you is, is how Philip's psychophysical training... And because all all his productions and all his ensemble work is highly underpinned by that training method and by the the particular sensibilities and sensitivities of of his his trained performers. Now, how did that translate to or inform the music making and sound making? Uh, Was conscious or unconsciously, was listening, I'm I'm, I'm talking to both about the production process, but also perhaps uh, what you heard from audience members, how... Did that filter through in any way, or did that become a did. dialogue between two different, very different practices, perhaps? No,
1: I mean, I think it felt very very much of a kind. Um, so, I mean, what Philip's work does really well is to help performers to attune to one another, right? So it's listening in a really broad, holistic sense, um, and also listening, um, you know, across cultures, right, and across um, across bodies, across um, life experiences, um, I mean, the beautiful thing was that, as a, as a, as a group, um, we had not, um, you know, everyone knew someone else in the group or had worked with someone else before, but this was the first time this group had, had assembled um, as, a, as a new unit. So um, the training, I think, that uh, Philip had done with um, the, the performers, because they had that as a common language, um, it enabled them and and us in, in proximity to them, to um, to find connection in a in a really um, uh, worthwhile and uh, quite easy way actually. Um, and the fact that the training um, allows performers to think about themselves in space, in relation to one another, um, that the metaphor that you used, right, the body as all eyes, so that they are able to. Um, uh, communicate with per- with near perfect clarity. Actually, meant that we were on the same wavelength, to use a, 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 an audio metaphor, um, and that did uh, inform the the creative process. Right? There was, there was, you know, in the in the best sense, we were able to, um, you know, to, to communicate and to share ideas and to riff on one another and um, to to. To step into each other's roles, right? By you know, performers suggesting musical cues or sonic ideas. Um, I would suggest bits of text, right? So it very much felt like a kind of cohesive entity. And in performance, um, that sort of deep listening. I mean, the Oliveros idea, I think, was also apparent um, because of uh, because of the training and because of the of the human relationships between us, which I think were really um, uh, fair and equitable and um empathetic and uh, caring mm-hmm. um and I, I try to touch on that in a kind of I, I as I reread the article now, I think it's a little um it gets a little gloopy um near the end uh but at the time I was I mean I I, I mean I do I, I still feel it actually I mean the 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 human relations were were so um Harmonious. That I I felt like it was important to state that as a reflection on the piece, because the making of the thing, um, you know, that those qualities are often inherent in the piece itself, right? And if the if the relationships are are damaged or they're unequal, um, I I happen to to think that that does have input in the in the piece itself right implicitly or explicitly and that an audience will also pick up on that and there were audience members who um you know who who noted the quality the high quality of listening um on on the stage right and that the connection between the human the performers was um striking uh and that stays with me even though i think as i reflect on the article i I probably maybe could have ended it with a with a, a slightly less not maudlin but um
2: i don't know it, it seems a little happy, clappy yeah. uh, in in retrospect. <laughs> yeah, but I I liked how you ended with saying, okay, the, the performance can have a reflection of um, an even distribution of power, right? So that's I'm ongoing. riffing on.
1: I'm thinking about the Christopher Small yeah um, the, the book, the, music the King. musicing, yeah. which I really really love that book. Oh, I constantly it's, it's, uh, I I think it's wonderful. An article where I don't yeah, I know <laughs> it's, it's daft. but I mean, I and I love the idea that uh, he says that you know music musicing can create. Um, utopian spaces. Yeah. but What he doesn't do is, I think, is acknowledge that that is, um, you know, not a given, right? And that yeah. um, music, music, and musicking are only as good as the people who I say good. But like, I mean, the, in terms of like of how they yeah. how they relate to one another, yeah. the uses to which it is put, right? Musicking can be can be corrosive and, and toxic as well. And there are plenty of examples of music used in invidious ways in in, yeah. in history. Um, Even as torture. You know, indeed, I mean, yeah, literally. yeah. So I was trying to point to, to yeah. point to um, what we had created yeah. as a as a uh, a model yeah. for for um, you know happy ways of working. Yeah, because we equal. Yes, non- it was democratic and um, hierarchical way. Yeah. Yes. Um, and I put in a little reference there in the end, uh, it's more like an in-joke. Um, I presented this work, uh, a paper in uh, in Berlin a few years ago, and um, a very esteemed German academic, whom I will not name, it wasn't you, David. Um, uh, sort of said <laughs> something like, "Oh well, in German state-funded theatre, it's all so um, you know, it's all you know. There's, there's so much cash and it's, there's so much um, you know prestige that, of course, we you know, this is an, an inevitable thing, and there's nothing particular about 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 what you presented. And I thought, yeah, I think I, I that didn't feel right to me. I, I very much doubted that that this this um, that this. Uh, was was the case, so I, I made a little reference to you know even in
0: state funded German theater, this might 't happen you know well, <laughs> just to, to add one one thought to that I mean heinrich Goebbels has often in his in his talk said, "I cannot produce any work in German theaters anymore because there 's these overfunded it, it, you know uh, places with very very strict um, work divisions, and this person is only allowed to carry that candle from left to right, right. and that <laughs> other person comes in from the you know yeah. and, and that creates uh, or oh, that is actually uh, potentially stifling to all this kind of um, I mean, collaboration you could, you could, that you're talking about and also that, that, that sort of softening of roles yes. and of, of, of being open to yes. an actor bringing in a piece of music or a director doing this and that or the sound designer taking over the yeah. direction for a particular sequence or something. I, I just mentioned this because I, the thing that I constantly refer to with, with uh, Christopher Small and his, his notion of musicking is that he says the meaning... You know, of music does not lie in the yeah, piece, yeah. or or even the yeah. script, the, a, the score, or the recording, but right. it's a relationship. Yeah. It's about yeah. the relationship between yeah. if I use a particular piece in order to go running, or in order yeah. to calm yeah. you know a child down, or whatever it might be, I create a meaning by it's by fostering action. that relationship. Yeah. And that, that's in some way that's also another com- connecting factor that we've all talked about practices. Yeah. We've tried to theorize them in different ways. We all talked about talked about practices where not only the, the result, the performances that we've described and talked about are um, are sort of fluid in terms of their the, the frames or the, the kind of genres or the kind of uh, listening situations they create, but they're also fluid in, 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 in their creation processes in the sense that typical work relationship, typical roles of this is what a director does, this is what a musician does, this is what a sound designer does, mm-hmm. which are quite... Uh, encrusted and and sort of is that a word <laughs> in, in in entrenched yes. or, or uh, sort of quite established and slightly ossified I think yes. that's a better word mm. um, and, and and they all have in common Which, that, they, that but,
1: they but the sound I mean the sound designer role wasn't always that right I mean and only only in recent yeah. decades has it become something that that is more clearly defined um, so it's interesting that there was more fluidity and flexibility in terms of like how sound itself was. Um, was put together, and yet now we now we're at a point where it's it 's more fixed, so we have to work around it, mm-hmm. not necessarily in
2: advance. I'm just thinking also about uh, you know because I 've seen the theater scene in Turkey and I 'm now also um, working on the funding side. Uh, I've been in in the committees for music theater in Belgium and in Netherlands, I mean for opera in the Netherlands. And you know what I've seen also as a kind of difference is that I think in Turkey where there is almost no money at all, to make uh, theatre there's no funding if there's funding it's only for logistics it's not for the people and their you know labour they actually do think a lot uh, about that relation you know creating that what what uh, Small is actually saying you know the the, the theatre plays really a social role and and it's really about that relation and whereas Yes, there's a lot of money also in Belgium and Netherlands for for theater, and and maybe that's now getting less and less now. Of course, that there's a, also a danger there and a fear. So in in a way, the ending of your uh, article is is foreboding, as, I think, for for Europe too, uh, at least Central Europe. But um, um, I think what happens is with with a lot of uh, with with you know uh, projects that are really well funded is they have a lot of space and time to work on this aesthetic experimentation. Um, but they, they they forget sometimes you know okay. really the relationship with with the audience or what it actually does in the contemporary setting in which they do it so it's really so that 's now shifting I think like the, the the kind of performance that I was talking about in the two thousand and tens I think now I see kind of uh, a shift that goes more towards trying to tell again uh, stories uh, of people. Uh, uh, you know could be also uh, you know ethnic uh, class based stories and all, all that kind of stuff but but with a more c- political engagement because i think it uh, i think that's what was lacking in the last uh, 20 years is that kind of uh, political mindset although i have to say both of you actually touch upon it also in your article you say you know um, uh, that even even the experimentation with with, with perception uh, can be uh, political Um, So it it is in a way still also a model for for how we can be with each other and and relate to each other. Um, Yet I think what what I felt also as kind of a hunger that all of these performances have always this uh, possibility, this option. It can be political, but it doesn't have to be political um that makes it a little bit too vague and i think uh yeah right i mean um in a way we we, we have been in this kind of apolitical uh, time for a long well, time that's a kind of modernist move right yeah well um, you know, maybe back to modernism Adorno, right yeah probably in, a, in an adornian way yeah. yeah we have to be careful of the power relations yeah. and, and i think that was also what what that production that you were in was—it was, it was a, trying to expose that. Trying um, to expose, yeah. In so, a, in a, in a, but again, a it can, but it doesn't course. have to. Whereas now, yeah. I think we are—we we have to. We, have to, we <laughs> are getting to a point where also the music theater and and and, uh, and and theater that engages with music and sound is much more aware of of of, the, of that kind of ideological uh, uh, power that 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 you can create to theater and and being self-aware of that and and giving people more political options, I think, to think
0: about. I think but, yeah. if I may steer us towards a sort of a final act of this conversation, I think that, that already, mm-hmm. Peter, you already uh, are are kind of doing what we, we um, wanted to do at the end is to, to place our articles in their historicity in the yeah. sense that, you know, where, where have things developed personally in our own research, but also perhaps in the field as we perceive it. Obviously, we can't explore the field as a whole in this in, 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 in this podcast. There's going to be a cumulative effect over the the hundreds of episodes we will produce <laughs> that uh, we will maybe give give an overview of that. But and you, I, I sense that you're saying one of the things is that there is not only a need or a tendency in in current uh, theatre and in current productions to remind themselves of the political. Uh, potential and political, almost uh, responsibility that theatre has, but also in our scholarship to pick up on it and not just be, yeah. not just be descriptive and kind of um, you know sort of finding theoretical models to explain all sorts of aesthetic phenomena in a kind of slightly disinterested self-serving, way. disinterested yeah. way, but 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 sort maybe above. Yeah, you know, floating above the oh, isn't that problems. interesting, but rather going, <laughs> yeah. well, hang on a minute, you know, what's that? Uh, well, will, uh, do, do you have other things that you feel you depart, or where new has come in and that kind of...
2: Um... And I'm thinking also of, of Hans T. lehmann's book, post dramatic Theatre, of course, that, that, yeah. that was a big influence also. I mean, most of the things that we discuss are parallel to that uh, trend, sure. of course, in the theatre, um, and concomitant to it, so... Um, like he has this one concept uh, because you said responsibility, but he calls it responsibility, and I was very very dis- dis- disappointed in his definition. And probably you were also disappointed in how he defined musicalization. I think yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in his book. So, so there are these. Uh, he 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 had really good concepts, but they were not always enough developed. So that's what we have been taking further, I think. And, and I think that also with the responsibility, um, for him that was exactly that, that kind of thing that you you feel uh, you can be responsible of, over the um, you know, your perception. So it's, on, it's happening on this aesthetic level, but I think the responsibility is much more about, again, this intersubjective ethical way, how we relate to each other. And that's actually what I see now, what performances are doing, is really you know, making you aware of you know, what, how to, to what extent are you really able to respond? And 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 how far should it go? Um, so so that's like for me an interesting way, you know. So I was in in the beginning talking about the listener's response, right? How we respond as listeners, to, you know, in a perceptive way, but. It should actually go also in 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 relation to each other in as as a community or as a as a mm. as a political entity or whatever so how how do how are we political and that is uh, for me the ability the responsibility um that you know layman couldn't really uh, touch upon, but he did in later texts so and and in one way I see this now going is for instance in the in the um more, more post-colonial decolonizing literature of sound studies and yes. uh, in, in how we relate to each other also through listening and ethical modes of listening like uh, uh, Dylan Robinson's uh, idea of the hungry listening as, as, as the thing that we should be careful for I think in the past I was really thinking of yes we are constantly hungry this is the modernist idea, hungry for new sounds, uh, other sounds uh, uh, the, the noise, bringing the noise but then someone like uh, Dylan would say be careful with that because that actually is a kind of a colonial take. Yeah. You know, we are we are, we, are, we are wanting to colonize constantly, which is a very Western, also white, uh, privileged-centered, uh, Eurocentric way of, of of listening, and that's something I see now in the in in the music theater scene that people are um, engaging with that, um, yeah, that, that hunger that that is problematic.
0: I was going to add i mean you're absolutely right, I think that was on my list of things that I think the the sensibility and the the awareness of um, post colonial and post migrant discourses in in discussing theater aesthetics um, has has really come to the fore, and we're we 're much more aware of it and much more you know attuned to it to pick up a, a term that you used earlier, Adrian. The other thing that I wanted to mention for for my own research and but but also how I see some of the research sort of around us develop is that praxeological turn if you want to call it. I am not big on the turns, but you know I think, the, just, I think he's just coined a new term everyone. Oh I, I yeah yeah I'm trying to <laughs> place a new No, I, that that wouldn't even be my own invention. But praxeology or well, you know that interest in how things are done. I think for a long time Theatre studies was interested in in the artwork of the performance, you know, and and I think that interest in as we discussed earlier, how things are made and uh, under which circumstances, which training backgrounds, but also under which ethical uh, circumstances are are they made? Uh, How do people work together? Who contributes what, you know, how? uh, And I think that's a really interesting thing because I think particularly in the area of music and sound, there have been a number of quite considerable changes in when musicians are brought in, what their role is in productions. I mean, at least in Germany in the past, you know, there, there, it would not be unusual for a company or for a director to rehearse a piece for six weeks. And then for the last two weeks, you know, someone, a, a, a pianist or composer drops in, covers some some transitions, you know, uh, underpins, uh, sort of under underpaints wallpapers, um, a particular scene, and and that's that. And that would not be unheard of and I think that's complete at least in Germany it's completely unusual now. People are usually there from the from the first day of rehearsal, even before then. Sometimes the music exists before before they've rehearsed a single scene. And you know, in the case of Paul Clark, who works a lot with Katie Mitchell, for example, he always in response to a p- particular play they're doing, a particular text, composes, say, an hour of music. Mm, I mean, and, they pick and choose. And then you can yeah. pick and choose, and then the sound designer is the person who says, well, why don't I use track one but loop it and do this and that and the other? So it becomes a completely different relationship. And I, so, you know, with works such as Millie Taylor's book on sound and music in the RSC or dushka 's books on the ensemble, but also recently on Oral dramaturgies in in a range of theatre forms, gig theaters, very uh, sort of uh, inventive and subversive theatre forms. There are a number of number of really interesting publications that that become interested in in, the, in this in this sort of in the practice of of making theatre and and particularly in the role of sound and music in that. And that's something where I personally also have. Invested more in and have been more interested. I don't think I haven't done many sort of performance analysis in the last few years, which I've sort of tried to do in in early texts because I thought that was what what one did. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm not dismissing it. It's an important uh, discipline in our in in theatre studies. You know, describing and analyzing performances. But it's my bread and butter. Yeah, yeah, precisely. And uh, <laughs> I'm not in, in any way suggesting it's passé at all. I'm just saying the interest for. Rehearsals for mm-hmm. creation, yes. for creativity, uh, c- collective creation—all yes. those kind of phenomena has, has I think, gained more traction. Yeah. And than I'm quite I think this is happening in musicology
1: as well. Yes. I mean, there's a recent series of books around. Um, what it's called, distributed creativity, right? So thinking not, not just in terms of the composer as being the, the, the only person of, of interest, right, in a musical event, but the performers themselves yeah. as creators. This is within the, the Western um, art tradition, right? Um, which is still kind of uh, a radical idea, a somewhat radical idea in musicology, right? That yeah. we should value the input of of performers, conductors, audience members,
0: to and to kind of Christopher Small, right? Everyone being part of a of a musicking event. And certainly, I mean, I, just recently, a week ago, I went to to see an old piece by Heiner Goebbels which uh, has been re-performed as part of the celebrations around uh, Ensemble Modern, which is the Frankfurt Ensemble for New Music. Uh, I think it's their 40th uh, anniversary or something. And again, uh, he tells the story that he came with you know piano sketches of things and then said well the instrumentation and everything and the, the, the kind of the fleshing out of of these ideas that's that's our job together and they were completely instrumental if i uh-huh. may use that <laughs> pun uh, precisely um to you know in, in 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 sort of getting to a finished composition as far as i understand so it's, you know exactly an example for that really then but how, how would you say your yours is the youngest of our it three is. examples. But um, so how has it aged? How has <laughs> it aged? Um, I mean the thing is that I I
1: wrote it so shortly after the um, the experience of, of working with um, the other uh, artists that it all it all it's all bound together in my mind. Um, uh, and reflecting on it if I were to I mean I'm the interesting thing to me is that it, it actually it connects to other areas of my of my research. So the other part of, one of the other parts of me is interested in, in modernism, um, and in the last few years I've been working on an edited collection that looks at how modernism uh, operates in contemporary theatre, so its legacy but also its enduring yeah. tradition. Yeah. Um, so as texts that continue to be performed, dramatic texts that are, are adapted or, or reversioned, yeah. but also things like um, uh, you know, transmission of, of non-textual practices, training, etc., uh, etc. Et right? And there's a section of the volume that's about um, slippage, mm-hmm. so so where we can't quite tell whether something is modernist or something else. Right? So I'm, I've been spending time thinking about how modernism continues to animate us in ways that are recognized and not recognized. And I'm just realizing that this article was a a way into that for me, right? There's another example of a a piece of dramatic text from the mid 20th century, this Genet play, right? That still has um, valence for us, right? So if I I were back again, I would would lean more into that aspect of it than the the recomposition part, which if I'm quite honest, was just a kind of a, a hook I mean, I wasn't particularly interested in in theorising that at length, and I don't do it. Right? It's just a kind of a, a, a way into the article. Uh, I, I feel like it. It, it may be a kind of a, a bait and switch. You might be expecting something more um, systematic, right? Something more Rosneresque in the article that doesn't actually emerge. <laughs> no, you're I'm coining just, a new word. I yes, know. I think Rosneresque. Uh, will Rosneresque. That um, is here to stay. <laughs> Uh, but I, I, you know, I have happy memories of the of the performance, and I'm not um, embarrassed about uh, the article, apart from the um, erratum at the end. So, if you're reading it, please check out the erratum um, published in a later issue.
0: Maybe I should mention a final thing because I think I wasn't aware of this at the time of writing my piece, uh, and it's sort of which is simply the. The existence or the emergence of sound studies as, I think they call it not a discipline, but a field of study or sort of a a shared interest or something like that. It's highly interdisciplinary. Um, I have a feeling that theatre doesn't play a great part in sound studies yet. There's a lot on. You know, radio and on 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 sort of technologies and on DJing and on 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 all sorts of interesting, you know, really fascinating subjects. But theatre slightly seems to be slightly sort of exempt from from this. Although I think it's uh, it's actually highly appropriate. But I think so. That's sort of. A current plan in terms of you know looking to where, where where to situate yourself to connect more to read more and to connect more to the discourses the terminology the the, the, the kind of interests uh, or perspectives of of sound studies and the various because i think it offers a lot of interesting discourse also around sort of the the connections uh sound studies seems to be not always but very often interested in technology and the which of course is is what are the things that has changed most dramatically in in our field? I mean, the the acting has stayed, I mean, the style of acting has changed, but it's not taken a lot. Well, I'm saying that probably that's not true because we've got avatars and Mm -hmm. uh, um, holograms Mm -hmm. acting and robots Mm -hmm. acting. So I'll I'll retract that statement. Um, But certainly the, the, the sort of the the explosive development of technologies of producing sound, reproducing sound, comp- recomposing, to, to use your term again, to use a sound and live instantly recompose it in all sorts of ways have led to uh, really dramatic changes also in, in theatre making and theatre attending. And so I think that's, that's another uh, area that I'm, I'm really quite keen to um, explore more. The end.